passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to continue in 2 Samuel 7 this morning. Um, this morning's message or this morning's passage is, is a prayer. It's focused on this um, response from David to this incredible, incredible uh, passage that we looked at last week. Pastor Kurt led us through it this past uh, Sunday. And this uh, beautiful prayer that we're going to look at this morning, um, I, I think we can learn a lot from it. There's a lot that um, is available for us uh, to learn about how we also can pray. And so as we jump into 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want us to just um, start by, by asking ourselves um, and considering how exactly would you define your prayers? How would you define the prayers that you offer to the Lord? What is, what is it that you pray for the most often? Or, or maybe another way of saying that is, is what is at the, the heart of your prayers? That's what 2 Samuel chapter 7 addresses. For David, at least in this prayer, as we look at this text, it's, it we see his, his prayer is, is shaped by and rooted in the promises of God. So in the first half of this prayer, we see that David is in awe of God's promises. The second half, we see that David actually takes time to pray those promises that God has made to him. And if you're looking for a structure this morning, that's it. That's, that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to look at the awe, at the promises of God and how we can pray in that end and then also look at how we can pray God's promises as well. And so I want us to just consider how we can have our prayers shaped by, molded by this text this morning. What would it look like if our prayers increasingly were shaped by awe, awe in the promises of God? What would it look like if our prayers were increasingly filled with praying the promises that God has made to his people we would continually go to the Lord and ask the Lord to accomplish his plans, to accomplish his promises to each and every one of us. That's the heart of this text. Remember what we saw last week, 2 Samuel chapter 7, this crucial text. David opens, as, as the, the chapter opens, David is experiencing rest while he is sitting on the throne of Israel at long last. It starts this way, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, and then it continues on from there. Notice this idea of rest here. It's not talking about a Sunday afternoon nap. It's, it's this theologically loaded term here because before this, in the Bible, we see that God had promised his people one day when they enter into the promised land, they will experience rest. So off in the distance, before God's people enter into the promised land, God has promised them, one day when you enter into the promised land, you will experience rest. I will give you rest from your enemies. Deuteronomy chapter 12 is one of these texts that tells us about this future rest for the people of God. It says this, but when the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around, and then it continues on with what you are to do when God gives you rest. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 opens in this context that, that God has promised his people rest, 
And 2 Samuel chapter 7 opens with David experiencing that rest. And this is significant because David, as he's experiencing rest, takes it upon himself to build a temple to the Lord because God has given his people rest. Significantly, that's the heart of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, when it talks about this idea of rest, it says this, when you worship the Lord, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. So here's the context of of 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is, everything he desires to do is shaped by scripture. David knows his Bible, and he knows that according to Deuteronomy chapter 12, when God gives his people rest from their enemies, the temple is not far off. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 12 says. God is going to give his people rest. After that, a temple will be built. And so David is is looking at his life through the lens of Scripture. As he's looking at his life, experiencing this rest from his enemies, his mind is drawn back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And as his mind goes to Deuteronomy chapter 12, goes to this promise, David looks around him, and as he's looking around him, he says, this is it. This is the moment This is the time I'm going to be obedient to God. I'm going to build his temple. I'm going to fulfill the words of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Of course, as we saw last week, that's not at all how things play out, is it? David's heart here is is in the right place, but that's not God's plan. God doesn't need David's blessing, but he will freely bless David. More than that, we see that God promises that he will use David as a way to bless the entire world. In fact, it's important for us to to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 in light of the entire story of the Bible, as, as a part of God's unfolding plan to save not just humanity, but really to rescue all of creation itself. Many times in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see references from this promise made to David back to this promise that God had given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. That's intentional. God is revealing to David that his plans for David are actually a part of his plans for Abraham, and by extension, his plans for all of humanity. In other words, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is clarification of God's promise to Abraham, telling the specifics of how God is going to keep his promises to Abraham. Most notable of these promises is found in Genesis chapter 12. It says this, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So centuries before the time of David, God declares that somehow, some way, 
he is going to use Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. And this actually goes back even further. This plan to bless the families of the earth goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They rebel against God's plan, and yet God has a plan immediately after rebellion of how he's going to fix a broken creation. He's going to reverse the curse that affects all of what he has created. And this promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, it's not just a promise for David, it's a promise for all of humanity. And that's what Pastor Kurt showed us this past week. This promise for all of humanity is that one day a son of David will fix the problem that's afflicting all of humanity. And according to the gospel, we know that this promise is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus, this king who will reign on the throne of God's kingdom forever and ever. Don't think I can stress the importance of this chapter. It serves as the hope for the people of Israel for the next thousand years from the time of David until the time of Christ until those promises are at long last kept in the person of Jesus. And this morning's text shows us how David responds to these promises that are given to David, but also that are given to all of humanity. I mentioned earlier, there's a lot we can learn from David on how we also can pray. And before we begin our time in 2 Samuel 7 this morning, I just want to give you the heart of this morning's sermon. The focus that we're going to be looking at is I've been praying through this text this past week. My prayer has been that we would be a people, a group of, of individuals as well as corporately, that every single one of us would walk away from this text transformed, that our prayers would be transformed. And my prayer is that you and I, we would increasingly pray like David here in this passage, that we would offer up prayers that are filled with awe at what God has done for us in the gospel. The promises of God's word about the gospel for you and me. And here's the heart of this text this morning. As we stand in awe of the gospel, we can confidently ask the Lord to do what he has promised. Everything that we're gonna see in this chapter comes back to this. As we stand in awe of the gospel, we can confidently ask the Lord to do what he has promised. That's the heart that we see from David here in this passage. David stands in awe of the promises of God. The, the heart of his prayer is just five simple words. Do as you have spoken. That's, that's David's prayer. That's all he asks God. He says, do as you have spoken. And you will never go wrong with a prayer that echoes those five words. Do as you have spoken. And so as we stand in awe of the gospel, we can confidently ask the Lord to do everything that he has promised to his people in the gospel. Let's go ahead and jump in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and look at how our lives can be transformed by this prayer. But let's pray before we jump in. Father, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your glorious plan to rescue us from the consequences of our rebellion. We thank you for your glorious plan to bring us into your family. You are a, a good, good God. God, we ask 
this morning that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see how your word might transform us increasingly into the image of the Son. It's in his name we pray these things, confident and awestruck that you hear us, that you delight to answer the prayers of your people. Amen. Let's consider how David responds to the awesome promises of God, starting with awe in verses 18 through 20. Then, David, or then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. I love the movements of this chapter. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it opens with David sitting in his house. I guess I shouldn't say sitting. It doesn't tell us he's sitting. David is in his house, and he's contemplating what he can do for God. But by the end of the chapter... David is no longer in his house, he's in the presence of the Lord, and he's in awe of what God has committed to do for David. Verse 18 tells us that David went in and sat before the Lord. This is almost a certain, certainly a, a reference to the tent that was holding the ark at that time. What's astonishing is that David is able to enter into the tent containing the ark. After all, this was something that only the priests were allowed to do. And just a couple weeks ago, as we were in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we saw the danger of not keeping God's commands seriously when it comes to the ark. So how is David able, in, able to enter into the presence of the ark when only priests were allowed to do that? Well, I think the key to understanding what David is able to do here is to understand this promise that God had given to David from last week. In the midst of this promise from God to David, we see that there's this special relationship between David and his offspring and the Lord himself. We see this in chapter 7, verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is a, a reference or a promise to David about his offspring, about his sons, the, the royal kings of Judah. And last week we saw that there's this double, double fulfillment here of what's taking place. God ultimately fulfills this in the person of Jesus, and yet it's also partially fulfilled in the Davidic kings and in David. We saw that God adopts the Davidic kings as his own son. Psalm 2 is this song that was sung at the coronation of a new king. Every time a new king would ascend to the throne of Judah, they would sing Psalm 2, and it says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So as kings, the, the, the sons of David, they would be adopted as the sons of God, and this is just a title. 
It's just a statement, uh, excuse me, it's not a statement of their being. It's not a statement of, of who they actually are. With Jesus, it's, it's not just a title. It's also a statement of who he is. But here we see that, that God chooses to adopt the Davidic kings as his sons, this special relationship. In fact, this goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to Adam, who was considered to be a son of God, if we look at the genealogy of Luke chapter 3. This is a, a reference, a fulfillment to God's original plan between himself and his creation. And because the, the kings are the adopted sons of God, they have the same access to God the Father as those who are found in Christ Jesus today the access that we also have. Those who are considered to be children of God are welcomed into the presence of God the Father because of Jesus. And we'll soon talk about the awe of David in this passage. It starts right here. That the king of the cosmos has welcomed us into his family. So David comes into the presence of God who is his father, an unheard of thought in that day. And notice that David sits before the Lord, I think. Don't you know, take this too seriously, but I think, after doing a little bit of research, this is the only place in the entire Bible that someone sits before the ark. That someone sits before the presence of the Lord. At least in the Old Testament. There are plenty of times when we look at the Old Testament where priests will stand before the Lord. But never, except for right here, does a person sit. And again, I think this is a, a reference to this special relationship between God the Father and David here. This, the, the Lord, the, the King of glory, has, has welcomed him into his family. And so David is able to enter into the presence of God, and he's invited to sit as a son would sit with his father. And at long last, David speaks and he's, he's awestruck for what God has promised to him in the previous passage. He, he says, who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me this far? David starts by speaking about the marvel that is God's provision for him to this point. From the moment of his calling all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 to this moment, decades later, David is intimately aware that he would have nothing if it were not for the grace of the Lord, if it were not for the Lord's provision for him. And David looks back on his life in awe and wonder, but he doesn't stop there. He says that all these things that God has done for him in the past, they pale in comparison to what God has now promised to him. These plans God has for David's future and not just for David's future, but for the future of all creation. Verse 19 again. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. David doesn't really know what to say because of the promises of God for him. This is what awe looks like. 
David here is speechless. He says, what more can David say to you? God's plan for David is so amazing. David, he, he, he's out of words. He, he doesn't know what to say moving next. But notice, and this is really, really important. Notice that, that God's plan for David is not just for David. That's what David has in mind here in verse 19 when he ends by saying, this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. The ESV gets at the heart of this phrase, what David is referring to in a way that many other translations don't. This, this promise that is given to David is not just a promise for David, it is instruction for mankind. It's for all of humanity. Earlier I said the promises to David were actual promises for all of humanity, and you might have thought, well, that's maybe a a little bit of a, a logical leap, but here we see David himself understands that these promises to him are not primarily for him. They're actually for all of humanity. David is in awe here, and he's in awe because, not so much because God is going to bless him, though there, there's certainly some of that, because, but because David grasps how God's plan for David somehow is going to be used for all of humanity. Verse 19 I don't normally talk about the Hebrew we're going to hear because of the, the drastically different translations that are available to us. David literally says, and this is Torah for mankind. So when David is, is thanking God for what God has promised to him, he says at the end, this is Torah for all mankind or for mankind. David grasps that God is, is as a part of his plan to establish his Torah or, or another way of saying that is to establish his rule, to establish his law, his reign, that his plan to establish that over all humanity will be found in what God is doing with David. And those of us now standing on the other side of the cross, we can see, we have insight into how God planned to establish his kingdom, his law, his rule over all humanity. And we see that it's through the son of David. It's through Jesus. It's through the spread of the gospel by the power of the spirit under the lordship of King Jesus. And David doesn't have all of the details, but he can grasp far off what God is planning to do. And no wonder David is in awe. No wonder David doesn't know what to say here. He's nearly speechless because this promise goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day God will save a broken creation. And that promise includes a son of David. And that's too much for David to fathom. And so David responds with awe, but he doesn't just respond with awe. He is intentional in expressing his gratitude to the Lord for his plan. Verses 21 and 22 make this clear. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. 
Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no, one, no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. David here praises the Lord because God has revealed his word to David. God has shown himself to be great. God has shown himself to be gracious in these promises that are made to David as well as to all of humanity. David knows that God did not have to intervene. God is not obligated to save. And yet God chose to, out of his gracious and loving character, out of a commitment to his own glory and commitment, of course, to our good. David knows that. David knows that God didn't have to speak to his creation to reveal himself. And yet that's exactly what God does. God speaks to, to people so that they might know the way that they can be saved. And God speaks so that people can look forward to that day, that they can pray toward the coming of the son of David who will save a broken world. And no wonder David declares there is none like you and there is no God besides you. But David doesn't just express gratitude for God's revealed word. He also praises the Lord because of his plan for his people, his plan for Israel. It says this in verse 23, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. I know there's a lot of language here in, in these two verses that, that draws us back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I think there's an intentional connection here. Deuteronomy chapter 7, talking about God saving Israel, why God saved Israel. He says this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So David looks at this calling for the people of Israel, he looks at God's plans for them and how God is planning to use Israel to accomplish this salvation that will go to the ends of the earth, and he thanks God for God's plans. Just like in Deuteronomy chapter 7, David knows that God's plans for Israel are not because of any greatness on their part, not because of any ability on their part, but because God is sovereign that God is gracious, that is bound up in who he is. In spite of all of Israel's wanderings, in spite of all of Israel's rebellions, God will remain committed to his plan to use them to see the nations brought to him. That salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. God's commitment to his people until the end of time and beyond is because of God's character. Do you see the heart of God here? And this leads David to awe and to gratitude. 
Central to the heart of David's prayer here is this wonder at the plan of salvation. You know, when I think of awe, I oftentimes think of the beauty of creation. Just last night, after that really, really weird rainstorm that we had for like 10 minutes, we saw, sitting in our back room, we saw one of the clearest, most beautiful, vivid, vibrant rainbows that we've ever seen. Just absolutely stunning. My wife is running through our house trying to wake children up so they can come and look at it. Never a good idea. She didn't wake him up. When I think of awe, I think of, you know, beautiful mountains, sunset over the ocean. I think of clear, starry night skies. And all of those things inspire us to awe. And yet here we see, for David, his awe is rooted in God's plan to save humanity. That's why at the beginning of our time this morning, I said the heart of this text is awe in the gospel. It's not just an awe of God's glorious creation. It's not just for the good gifts that God gives to his people, but the gospel itself. The gospel itself is this well of unending awe and marvel that we can keep coming back to over and over and over, and we will for all of eternity stand in awe of the gospel. We will marvel at the majesty of God's plan to save a broken and rebellious creation and to bring that creation, you and me, into his family forever. We will stand in awe of the cost, of what it cost the Lord Jesus so that he could take image bearers and make them sons and daughters. We stand in awe of the gospel. And honestly, that would be enough for us to consider this morning to just stand in awe of the gospel. David doesn't stop there. Notice only, not only is his prayer here awe at the promises of God, he also prays for the, he prays the promises of God here. That's what he closes with in verses 25 through 29. He gives thanks for God's incredible plan. And then notice what he says in verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. That's the heart of David's prayer. Those five words right there at the end of the verse. Do as you have spoken. David knows no other way to pray than to just say, God, here's the promises you've made to me. Do it. Please do it. If you want to become more intentional in prayer, if you want to be more God-honoring, if you want your prayers to be rich and God-honoring like David here, then look no further than those five words. Do as you have spoken. This is why Bible reading and prayer have to go hand in hand. If you read your Bible without praying, it just becomes an academic exercise. But... 
If you pray without reading your Bible, you might be missing the heart of God for his people. But when they're melded together, when you bring those two together, when you're reading through the scriptures and you see God's purposes, his promises, his priorities, and you take those and you set those to prayer for yourself and for your family and for your church and for your world, that is life-altering prayer. Let me just give you one example of what this can look like practically. Let's say that you or someone you know is going through a season of hardship. It could be caused by the loss of a loved one. It could be a season of doubt in the goodness of God. It could be suffering at the hands of other people. It could be suffering just physical illness or affliction. Uh, Prayers that you've offered for a long time and God hasn't answered. You've been going through this hardship for a while. And as that season continues, you or that, that other person begin to ask God, why? You begin to say to God, how long, O oh Lord? And you can't wrap your mind around the reasons why God is allowing you to experience hardship, why God is allowing you to experience him from a distance, why he seems far off or not even present. How should you pray? in the midst of that real-life affliction? Well, if, if you're reading your Bible, there's a number of ways you could pray. You could run to Matthew chapter 28. And you could pray something like this, God, I, I know that you have promised that you will be with your people forever, and yet it feels like you are distant, that you are nowhere to be found, and yet I trust you, I trust your word. I know that in spite of these feelings uh, of feeling forsaken, you have not forsaken me. And yet I confess that all too often it's hard to believe that. Help me, God. Please give me a sense of your presence. Remove this affliction. And as I wait, help me to trust you and your goodness and your unending presence with me. You might pray Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 says that God or Jesus is, is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so you might say... Jesus, your word says that you're not ashamed to call me a brother or sister, and right now I can't sense your presence, and it feels like you are ashamed of me. It feels like you have abandoned me, and I know that's not true because your word is true, but I need your help. And so help me to remember your unending love for me, your commitment to me, even when it seems that you are far off. You might pray Psalm 73. You might say, God, your word declares that even when my flesh and heart fail, you are my, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And right now, it feels as if there is no strength left in my heart. Help me, God. You declare that you are continually with me, that you hold my right hand. Help me believe. Help me to fix my eyes on you, even as I wait for you to remove this affliction from me. You might pray what I read this morning in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. This idea of placing your hope in the Lord. Because one day, we will again praise the God of our salvation. If you have the Bible, you have countless promises that can guide your prayers. And not only are these prayers guided by the promises of God for our good, They are also for the glory of God. 
And that's what David points out in the next verse, verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. You know, one of the reasons why God tells us what he's going to do before he does it, he makes promises before he actually accomplishes those promises, is so that when he does what he has said that he is going to do, we can see his greatness. We can see his greatness on full display. When it comes to the promises of God, there is no gap between what is good for us and what is glorious for God. You don't have to choose between one or the other. God's glory is on full display when he keeps his promises that he has made to you. And this connection between God's glory and our good when it comes to his promises gives us freedom to pray and to pray and to pray and never feel as though we are annoying God. Never feel as though we are asking too much of him. Never feel like we are asking God to do something that he has no intention of doing. David actually says that the promises of God give us courage to pray. I love verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David looks at the revealed promise of God, and as he looks at those promises, it gives him courage to make some astounding asks of God. And David says, I have no reason to fear upsetting you, God, when I'm praying you, asking you to do the things that you have spoken. I can, I can ask you with confidence. In fact, when we do that, when we pray the promises of God's word back to him, we're actually just declaring the trustworthiness of God. We're saying, God, you are trustworthy. Your character is trustworthy. Your word is trustworthy. In essence, we're taking God at his word. Verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. We can pray the promises of God. We can ask God to fulfill those promises because he is trustworthy. He is completely and utterly trustworthy. God does not change his mind. He keeps his promises to other people and to you. Don't believe the lie that the promises of God are for other people and yet you are somehow an exception. Even in our sin, even in our wanderings, we cannot negate the promises that God has made to his people because his promises are not found on your trustworthiness. They're founded on his trustworthiness. That's actually the heart of Psalm 89. Psalm 89 actually is a psalm looking back at the promises that God has made to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this promise that God makes to David that his house will endure forever. And it says this, that God's promises will endure in spite of the sin of David's sons. Psalm 89, my steadfast love I will keep for David forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and the iniquity with stripes. 
But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I love that line. I will not be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. God is saying, I am completely and utterly trustworthy. You can stake your entire life on that. All that you have, you can, you can stake it on my trustworthiness. God's promises will endure forever. And for David, this is the motivation for why he can pray, do as you have spoken with confidence, which is exactly what he does as he closes this chapter. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So what of us? What of us standing on this side of the cross? As we stand on this side of the cross, we've, we've seen now that, that God has, has revealed the fullness of his plan. Colossians chapter 1, 26 tells us that. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. We've been given this unfathomable gift of being able to take the Bible and go to the Lord in prayer saying, do as you have spoken. And as we stand in awe of the gospel, we can confidently ask the Lord to do what he has promised. And so as we close, I just wanna share five questions of how this passage might, just might, apply to each of us this morning. Questions for reflection later today. The first one is this, how often am I in awe of the gospel? How often are you in awe of the gospel? Is your awe gospel-shaped? When's the last time that you just paused to consider the majesty of the gospel, the lengths to which God went to rescue you? Have you been left speechless by God's plan to save or do you just pass it by, giving it little thought because of its familiarity? How often do I stand in awe of the gospel? Second, do I regularly give thanks to God for the gospel? Do I regularly give thanks for the gospel? We should be a thankful people. We should be expressing our gratitude to God at all times and for everything he does, for the big things and for the small things, but we should never stop giving thanks for his saving work in the gospel. Gratitude for the gospel is a regular part of Paul's prayers in the New Testament. It should be a regular part of our prayers today as well. Is thankfulness for your rescue a part of your prayer? Third, are my prayers shaped by a concern for the glory of God? Are they shaped by a concern for the glory of God? David understood that God's promises were not just for his good, but they were also about the glory of God. What, what about you? The first petition in Jesus' Lord, Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, God make your name holy, is about God's glory. How often do you pray that you would live a life that gives God glory? Before you go into a difficult meeting, or a difficult conversation, how often do you say, God, would you be glorified in how I conduct myself now? If you're a parent, 
How often do you ask God to be glorified in how you interact with your children and your family? How often do you pray on your way to Sunday morning worship? Saying, God, let me focus on you and your glory and not be distracted this morning. Are your prayers shaped by a concern for the glory of God? Fourth, are my prayers guided by the promises of Scripture? One of the great joys that I've got to experience over the past year is watching the, the transformation of my children's prayers. Every morning on our way to school for drop-off, we pray together, and at the beginning of the year, those prayers were very short and predictable. God, help me have a good day, amen. It's like clockwork. And there's nothing wrong with that. Philippians 4 says we should bring all of our requests and make them known to God. And he, there's, no, there's no qualifier there. No exceptions. And yet it has given me so much joy to watch those prayers transform to now be focused on the Spirit equipping them to live lives that bring God glory while at school. They don't use that language. <laughs> don't worry. To hear them ask God to be with them throughout their school day. To hear them ask God to help them to trust him when they feel sad. Again, that's not the language that they are using. The wording is, is far simpler than what I shared. They don't even realize what they're doing. And yet, their prayers are increasingly shaped by transformed by the word of God and the promises it contains. What about you? What about us? Examine your prayers. Are they guided by the promises of scripture? If not, how can you intentionally saturate your prayers in scripture? As you're reading your Bible, just, just write down a couple words from a, a, a verse that you read. And then after you get done, come back and pray that. It's a great way to start. Last question is this. Do I persevere in prayer because I am confident in God's character? Do I persevere in prayer because I am confident in God's character? Here's the sobering reality of our life today. We live in this already, not yet. God has made promises. He's kept some of those promises in Jesus, and yet we are also waiting for all those promises to be at long last fulfilled when Jesus returns. We live in this tension a life of promises fulfilled and yet not yet fulfilled? Do you persevere in prayer? Our perseverance or lack thereof says a great deal about our confidence in God's character, whether we realize it or not. If we are confident in the character of God, that he is utterly trustworthy, that he keeps his promises, then we will be motivated to persevere in prayer even as it seems those prayers go unanswered. David's promises here, excuse me, God's promises to David here are all the motivation that David needs to persevere in prayer. And we can do the same. As we stand in awe of the gospel, we can confidently ask the Lord to do what he has promised. Awe, thanks, glory, promises, perseverance. Those are at the heart of David's prayer. Do as you 
have spoken? What if we were a people who, just like David, go to the Lord repeatedly, asking him to do exactly what he has said he will do? Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice at your word. We thank you for the gift that it is. Help us to remember your trustworthiness, your goodness. Help us to remember that we can come with boldness before the throne of grace. And not only can we do that, but you delight when we do that. God, help us to be a people who pray the promises of Scripture, saying, do as you have spoken. For our own lives, for our families, and for all that we come into contact with. For Jesus' sake. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.